Hello everyone and welcome to this podcast that will focus on the difficulties that people in the aviation industry are facing right now because of COVID-19. While there are reasons to be optimistic about a bounce back in the industry in 2021 and 2022, right now many individuals and families are suffering the effects of this severe external shock to an industry that contributes enormously to the world economy. My name is Andy O'Shea. I'm chairman of an EASA advisory group called the Aircrew Training Policy Group and the CEO of the Pilot Career Guidance Service called the Airline Pilot Club. Prior to starting that, I was 28 years in Ryanair and 18 of those were as head of training. I'm joined today by Margie Burns, who has held senior positions within the aviation industry over the past 20 years, most notably as director of training and consultancy with Park Aviation and Managing Director of Aviation Selection Consultants. She has honours master's degrees in counselling, psychotherapy and human resource strategies and provides voluntary counselling at a suicide prevention charity. She has 17 years experience in mentoring and coaching pilots in the aviation sector, facilitating their personal and career development and well-being. She's experienced in developing and implementing peer support programmes and has been a regular speaker at aviation conferences on the subject of pilot selection and pilot well-being. Sitting just below the surface of this economic and financial disruption is an insidious threat to our aviation colleagues. This is their well-being and how this shock to our industry has impacted the psychological welfare of so many. Margie is an expert in helping people manage disruptive and debilitating circumstances. As an airline pilot, I am very familiar with the concept of threat and error management, TEM as it is known. This is a management philosophy that aviation personnel use to safely navigate their way through complex and safety-critical situations. So I think it would be interesting to apply well-understood processes to the situation that our aviation colleagues now find themselves in. Threat and error management has three fundamental concepts. We anticipate the threat, we recognise that the threat or error has impacted our situation, and we recover from the unsafe situation to a safe state. So, how can we use the threat and error management model to anticipate impending and future threats to aviation personnel? How those personnel can recognise that an undesired emotional or well-being situation exists and to identify actions to ensure that recovery can be achieved? So let's start with the anticipate phase. Margie, how can we anticipate that the COVID crisis will affect the well-being of aviation personnel? Well, for many, Andy, that means worries and concerns about providing for their families, paying their mortgage, a sense of loss of purpose as well. You know, identity issues because our identity is often tied to our job, feeling overwhelmed, isolated depressed and sometimes resorting to unhealthy coping mechanisms, uh, maybe overeating or substance abuse. And so I really feel if there was ever a time for us to do our best and destigmatize mental health in the aviation industry, it's right now. You know, after all, it is normal to feel stressed or anxious when you have been threatened with or have experienced job loss. Um, you know, we know the EU specifies that employers have a duty of care in terms of the mental health of workers. But unfortunately, as you pointed out earlier, uh, many skilled aviation personnel no longer have an employer. And so the duty of care for their mental health lies in their own hands. I see. And is there anything about the pilot function in particular, Margie, that makes them predisposed to experiencing difficulties? 
Well, pilots even pre-COVID were experiencing increasing job strain, uh, which isn't surprising really, um, given how their performance is increasingly being monitored, not just for flying proficiency, for fuel usage, on-time performance and a perceived expectation to operate at 100%, in other words, perfection. So when you have an industry that demands perfection and where a pilot's performance is being constantly monitored, whether that's an onboard system or an app, it doesn't help to humanise imperfection in the guise of stress or mental health issues or to manage it appropriately. So we really need to address this. We also know that the ICAO Manual for Civil Aviation Medicine contains only three references to assessing well-being. And uh, in addition to that, a review of the current IOSA Standards Manual reveals no references to mental health and well-being. So mm. these documents Andy, and processes need to catch up with what is happening in the industry. We're also aware that several studies reveal that diversity and inclusion is good for business. But still today, males make up 95% of the pilot global population. And I imagine the statistic is probably something similar for engineers. Yeah, yeah, surely. You know, so it's been well documented that um, males are less likely than females to report mental health issues. And this is really worrying because the suicide uh, statistics worldwide indicate that men are more likely than women to uh, die by suicide. So uh, these factors and uh, are important. It's important that we don't ignore the physiological and psychological factors that are affecting pilots right now. Yeah. And I mean, we spoke of gender there, that statistic of 95% uh, male um, occupation in the, the pilot skill set. Anyway, uh, we are well aware of that. But are there any other notable differences in how males and females respond to circumstances such as these? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question, Andy. Um, mental illness can affect women and men in different ways, just as a result of fundamental biological differences. Uh, for example, men are more likely to struggle with addiction or substance abuse, while women are more likely to struggle with anxiety or eating disorders. So if you think about the size societal expectation for men, you know, to adhere to this archetypal masculinity that embodies strength and dominance, that can lead to aggression and suppression of their true feelings. And really, their mental health is often damaged when they don't deal with the issues caused by their emotions. And this may explain why substance abuse issues are much higher amongst men. Um, you know, they potentially use the substance substances to numb their emotions rather than deal with their emotional concerns so that they can, in many ways, maintain that image of being a strong man. So societal expectations are not doing men any you know, service at all, and it impedes their inclination to seek help for mental health issues. And there's several studies that confirm this. So this helps explain the incredibly higher suicide rate amongst men globally. Absolutely, Andy. And uh, suicide statistics in Ireland and UK, they indicate that men are three to four times more likely than women to die by suicide, with the highest rates in the UK amongst men aged, I think it's 45 to 49. And in Ireland, the highest suicide rates are amongst men between the ages of 55 and 64. I know. And, you know, this is the worst possible aspect to what's happening and already I've heard reports of pilots taking their own lives. So it's it's really dreadful. Yeah, absolutely. Margie, what about like depression? Somebody like me would think that might be something that uh, would be relevant um, in terms of anticipating how people might react. 
Yeah, well, actually, there's something just to point out in terms of the depression, and it's just linked to what we've just been talking about, and that is gender bias has been reported in the treatment of mental health, where women are more likely to be treated for depression compared to men. And that happens even when they have the same standardised results on uh, depressive symptom scales. So this is really detrimental for both women and men because women are often portrayed as overly emotional or dramatic and men may be seen as too tough to be suffering from any emotional disorder. You know, so I would say as well, Andy, pilots by their nature, they're used to critically evaluating information and problem solving and they may continue to resort to trying to you know, problem solve the stress that they're feeling uh, or the mental health issue they're experiencing on their own or in other unhealthy ways. And this is really worrying when maybe a simple talk with the right person might be all it takes to reduce the enormity of the problem that they're experiencing. Yeah, problem shared and all that. Yeah. Absolutely. So Margie, that was a great discussion about, um, you know, how we can anticipate threats associated with this crisis. So if we move on to the kind of recognition phase, the people who are at the leading edge of this problem, you know, are those unfortunate people who have already lost their jobs. And for these, and also, I guess, uh, those who are worried about their employment, what are the key indicators that will allow them to recognize that they are in a situation that requires some sort of action on their part? Yeah, well, I'd first like to say, you know, and acknowledge that losing your job is one of life's most stressful experiences. Aside from the obvious financial anguish that it can cause. It can also take a heavy toll on your mood, relationships and overall mental and emotional health. So the threat of losing a job is almost as bad. So our jobs are often more than just the way we make a living. They influence how we see ourselves as well as the way others see us. And to be without that element of us is stressful. And we often see stress as an extreme external force something that happens to you. As a result, it may seem like there's really nothing you can do about your stress. And that's not the case, because if you can change the way you respond to stress, that can make all the difference in how you feel. Yeah, that's that's true. And it resonates with what, you know, I've been trained in as a pilot. But can you expand on that a little bit for us, Margie? Okay, well, I suppose the most fundamental thing to understand about stress is that it isn't a one-time event with one cause and one reaction. It's actually a cycle with many phases, which means that there are multiple opportunities to interrupt it before it turns into a full-blown chain reaction. So first of all, you've got the triggering event. So the layoffs that are happening at work or you've lost your job. Or the threat, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah, the threat of that. So what happens next is that your body, mainly your intuition or gut, uh, for instance, that's taking in information that something's not right. And our bodies are wired to scan for danger and assess safety. So this ability to know when your environment is safe or not safe, it's called uh, neuroceptin. And it happens without you even being conscious of it. So when your senses detect that something, you know, is a threat, they send a signal to your amygdala which is it's just a tiny shaped part of your brain, about the size of an almond. And that is right. responsible for processing your emotions, particularly strong emotions, maybe such as fear. And when the amygdala is triggered, 
it sends a signal to uh, two other sections of the brain, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. And these are responsible for maintaining balance in the body. So they communicate with the rest of the body through the autonomic nervous system. That's the part of the nervous system that, if you like, it regulates the many processes that occur unconsciously. So our breathing, our sleep, heart rate, that type of thing. Okay, so I suppose this is when the fight or flight response happens, is it? Absolutely. So once the hypothalamus and the pituitary receive the call that there is danger present, they activate the sympathetic nervous system, which is that half of the autonomic nervous system that rules the fight or flight response, as you say. And that stimulates the cardiovascular system. So your heart rate will increase, but it also stimulates the musculoskeletal skeletal system so that you're primed to be able to get away from the danger or stay and fight it. And this is this is a reaction to what's going on at the moment in your body, you know, that threat. So whenever the sympathetic nervous system is activated, it means that the other part, the parasympathetic nervous system, which governs your rest and digest function, that's suppressed because both cannot be active at the same time. And as a result of that, your immune system, your digestive system, they're given the stand down signal and you're left in a state of hyperarousal. So it's really about what happens after this point that determines how much stress you're under at any given time. OK, so what happens next then? Well, the next step in the cycle is where your response to stress starts to become something that you probably maybe for the first time, are really at least aware of. So you might recognise that your heart is racing, your stomach is upset. Maybe you're feeling aches in your body, your back. Uh, You might find yourself worrying about how you feel and how poorly you perceive yourself to be handling the stress. So it's very important to be conscious of, you know, negative thoughts that can be just that little bit damaging of maybe why is this happening to me or knowing my bad luck X, Y and Z is going to happen. These type of thoughts can lead to mental symptoms such as worry, anxiety, dread and any of these thoughts uh, or these thought patterns, they are unpleasant and a desire to not feel the emotional effects of these thoughts leads to the next step in the cycle which is uh, maladaptive coping and this is where it can get very wrong yeah i haven't really heard of that before can you just elaborate on maladaptive coping you know we try and uh, soothe ourselves in some way when we're feeling bad and we all have a habitual response to stress so for most of us that's relying on outside substances that might be food alcohol cigarettes caffeine maybe pharmaceutical or recreational drugs for some. But the irony of all of that is that the very thing you're hoping will make you feel better actually makes you feel a lot worse and can lead to addiction. So not only that, these kind of substances, they perpetuate the physiological stress response in the body so that you stay in that hyper aroused state, you know, being listless, uh, affecting your sleep. And it leaves your sympathetic nervous system on high alert. And in addition to that, all the high calorie comfort foods, alcohol, cigarettes and drugs have physical side effects that can push your body from being in a balanced state into full on breakdown. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Margie. They're, you know, really practical indicators that people will be able to recognize in themselves and hopefully spur them on to take some action. 
Yeah, and I'd say as well, Andy, it's just important to know that for anybody listening, that they're you're you know you're not alone. Many of us are facing the same insecurity at this time, and I know that may be of little comfort when you're stressed about paying bills and putting food on the table. But no matter how bleak or dark things seem right now, there is hope, and with time and the right coping techniques, you can come to terms with these setbacks. You know, ease your stress and anxiety. You know, get that blood pressure under control. Your listlessness your poor sleep, demotivation, isolation, and be able to move on with your life. Yeah, and uh, you know that kind of brings us into the uh, the recovery phase. So as we move into this stage, so of the threat and error management model that we are discussing mm. and trying to apply here, where should people start in that recovery sense? I'd say grief. Allow yourself to grieve, Andy. You know, it's a natural response mm. to loss. And that includes the loss of a job. And there are many other side effects of, of losing the job associated with that. So, you know, you're losing your maybe your professional identity, your self-esteem and confidence, having a daily routine, having a purposeful activity. And with work, there's a whole social network as well that can be lost. And as well as that, you and your family's sense of security. Yeah. And of course, like grief is such a powerful emotion and we normally associate it with uh, the loss of a loved one. And when that happens, there are really well established, uh, you know, societal procedures and structures to help us deal with that, such as, you know, religious services or humanist ceremonies. And of course, none of those are available in, in this instance, which uh, makes it even more difficult. Is there anything else, Margie? Yeah, I would say the importance of facing your feelings. You know, while everyone grieves differently, there are healthy and unhealthy ways to mourn the loss of a job. So it can be easy to turn to the habits that we spoke about earlier, such as drinking too much or binge eating. But these will only provide fleeting relief. And as I mentioned earlier, in the long term, they make you feel even worse. So acknowledge your feelings and uh, even challenging your negative thoughts. This will help you deal with the loss and move on. So I'd say give yourself time to adjust as well. We're in unprecedented times, you know, but accepting reality. It's important to acknowledge how difficult job loss and unemployment can be, but it's equally important, you know, to avoid wallowing. So the sooner that you can just accept the reality, it allows you to move on to the next phase of your life. So you need to keep your confidence up. So um, particularly when you're looking for a new job. So stop beating yourself up over this, you know, and challenge every negative thought that goes through your head. And I would say make a list of all your positives and remind yourself about all the skills that you have. I'd say to think of your job loss as a temporary setback. Most successful people have experienced major setbacks in their career at some time, but they managed to turn things around by, you know, picking themselves up or learning from the experience. And uh, you can do the same. And there's always some silver lining. Maybe that's given you more time to spend time with your family or look at other jobs that you might have thought about at a different time. You know, so sometimes out of adversity comes opportunity. The feelings generated by losing a job are you know, they're much easier to accept as well if you can find a lesson in your loss. So perhaps it's made you stronger than you realised you were. I know this firsthand as well when I was faced with job loss previously, but I, I decided to use the time to live out a dream of mine. And that was to go and live in Vietnam for a number of years uh, doing charity work. So, you know, perhaps for some people, this adversity will provide an opportunity. Yeah, and we're seeing uh, a lot of that. Colleagues are moving on maybe in their late 50s or early 60s, they've decided that they want to move on from aviation and uh, embrace some other 
yeah. career path uh, while the opportunity is there. And what about, you know, my old phrase of control the controllables, you know, focusing on what you can control? I think that's that's, you know, there are things that you can control. If you think about your natural reaction, you know, at times like this, for many, that's to withdraw from friends, you know. But I'd say don't underestimate the importance of other people when you're faced with the stress of job loss. Nothing works better at calming your nervous system than talking face to face with a good listener. So that is something that you can control. You know, you may want to resist asking for support out of pride, but opening up won't make you a burden to others. In fact, most people will be flattered that you trust them enough to confide in them. And that'll only strengthen your relationship. I'd say get involved in your community, Andy, as well. There's always something that can be done, build new friendships. Who knows what opportunities may come from that as well. Yeah, and I have a lot of sympathy for the younger pilots in particular or anybody who's just entered an aviation kind of skill set or profession directly from school because they don't have much of a life experience to draw on and so it'd be particularly disruptive for those uh, younger people who have never been faced with anything like this before so it's extremely difficult for them absolutely so in our human factors training pilots are trained to understand that fitness is an excellent defense against stress so i presume you have some thoughts on that Yes, of course. It's a powerful antidote to stress and, um, you know, as well as relieving tension in the body. It releases powerful endorphins that improve your mood and will have the benefit as well of trimming maybe the waistline or improving your physique, which is good for confidence. So even aiming to uh, exercise 30 minutes a day or, you know, break that down into 10 minute bursts of activity. And I would say to maximize stress relief instead of continuing to focus on your thoughts, focus on your body and how it feels as you move. You know, that sensation of your feet hitting the ground, for example, or the wind on your skin. And it's a mindfulness approach. But uh, again, a lot of science in terms of how this has improved people deal with stress, anxiety, depression. Margie, you know, we've looked at this problem using a tool that aviation people will be very familiar with, which is that threat and error management model. And we've applied that basic concept, uh, which is to, you know, go back to basics, anticipate threats, recognize an undesirable state and take action to recover from it. I hope this gives people and pilots in particular a sense of control in what they can apply and how they can apply, you know, well-known tools to deal with this massive external shock to their lives. I'd leave the last word to you, Margie. How would you like to finish off this podcast? Thanks, Andy. You know, if this podcast even helps one pilot, it's worthwhile. Uh, So thank you for allowing me to contribute. If I could also congratulate those pilots who took the first step last week and got in contact. And I just want to reassure any of you that are listening that feel you could do with some help, whether that's career advice or stress management advice or whatever. I'm offering free one to one confidential sessions at uh, pilotpeersupport.com. This is 100% independent, 100% confidential. I'm the only person with access to your details. So I'd say do yourself a favor and come and have a chat and see if this type of support is something that you can benefit from and doing that without any obligation. Oh, well done, Margie. That's a fantastic offer. And I really hope that people will take you up on it. So, Margie, thank you so much. And uh, I hope we get to talk again real soon. Great, Andy. Thank you very much.